Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ Community. So, as, along with Pastor Andrew, I want to greet you and uh, welcome you. If you're here in person or online, I'm Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're here on this beautiful uh, June Sunday morning. So thanks again for joining us. As a pastor, I have many joys. One of those is I get to share the mountaintop experiences with many of the people that I love and, uh, and care for over the years. But I also find myself walking in the deepest, darkest valleys of people. In 2012, it was one of those moments where I joined members of our congregation, Tyler and Amy Hilker, who found themselves in a deep, dark valley. Their eight-month-old son, Isaac, was diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia. I entered this dark valley with them with tears. I held on to them. I spent time with them in the hospital. And I have to say that I cried out to God on their behalf. Yet I found myself at times wondering, how would they get through this? Would their faith sustain them? Now, you may not have experienced what Tyler and Amy Hilker experienced, but I want to suggest for your consideration that each one of us, as we walk through life, are going to find ourselves in some very deep, dark valleys. We're going to find times when life falls apart on us. It may be physical, it may be a mental illness, it may be a relational meltdown with someone we care about deeply, it may be a business failure, or it may be an unexpected death of someone. This past week, I encountered this upfront and personal. My younger neighbor, right across from me, after his normal Saturday morning jog, after I greeted him as I was walking Harley, walked into the house and collapsed. After heroic medical attention, he died this week, leaving his family, his children, shocked in grief, their shattered lives laying before them. There are times, I don't know what it will be in your life, but there will be times when life will fall apart on you. But there is good news for followers of Jesus who have embraced Him as Savior and Lord, who have become their apprentice, His apprentice, that when life falls apart, we don't have to come apart. 
This is the hopeful truth. The Apostle Paul communicates to a first century church in Philippi, Greece. In his inspired letter, Christians refer to often as Philippians. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 4. Now, for several weeks across our campuses and across our church family, we have been exploring this remarkable inspired letter called Philippians. Let's remember that Paul writes from prison, a Roman prison. He writes in a very down-to-earth manner, yet heavenly-minded. And he provides for us, particularly in this text, very practical guidance. That when life falls apart, we don't have to. That we can find joy even when life falls apart. This is his focus. Now, as a thoughtful reader of the text and as a thoughtful listener... Here as we enter into verses 4 through 9 in our series, Paul's writing style noticeably shifts. Grammatically, Paul moves from a predominant narrative style, that is, describing what is, to a compacted, dense, instructional style, that is, what to do. He moves from what is to what to do. Paul's instruction has three very practical action steps when life falls apart. How do we return to joy when that happens? And the text follows this format. The first step, Paul will say, is we need to remember Jesus is with us. That is verses 4 and 5. Then in step 2, we are to go to God in prayer. That is verses 6 and 7. And then... He builds to the crescendo, the literary crescendo of verses 8 and 9, that we are to practice virtue. So the text flows around these progressions. Remember Jesus is with us, step one. Go to God in prayer, step two. And three, practice virtue. You ready? Here we go. Step number one, Paul says, is ensconced in verses four and five. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, also this Greek word can also be gentleness. That's my preference. Be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Now, Paul encourages us to return to joy. And he reminds us that joy is ultimately found not in a circumstance of life, but in a person. Notice where he goes in the text. Rejoice in the Lord. You see this little word in carries a lot of weight here. He reminds us that joy is found in the person and presence of the resurrected Christ. But notice also the emphasis here. Paul says at the end of this sentence, the Lord is at hand. You see that? The word hand in English is translated from a Greek word that also can be translated, I think better, as near. At hand captures approximate idea. The Lord is near. Now, Paul is brilliantly nuancing two ideas, the nearness of Jesus then and the nearness of Jesus now. What do I mean? First, Paul is reminding the Philippian believers and us that Jesus is with us, but his return in the second coming that will set the world right is around the corner. That's the idea, that his future return in fullness will come. But also, Paul is having the idea here that to say, remember Jesus is there with you. He's there with you now. 
The Lord is near to you now. In other words, you and I are never alone in any life circumstance, even in the most difficult and fearful moment of our lives. In other words, joy and peace that our hearts so long for, friends, is not tied. It does not have to be tied to life circumstance. It is tied and connected to a person who is always with us now and yet one day more even fully in the future when he returns to set the world right. Now let's recall, if you've been a part of our series, uh, that we have defined joy both in an interpersonal neurological way with data, but also a theological way. We brought these together and we said that joy defined is when we experience someone being glad with us. The Bible, wisely so, tells us as image bearers of God, we are hardwired for joy. And that joy is a deeply relational construct as we are made in the image of a relational triune God. In other words, joy means that we experience someone who is there for us, who is glad to be with us, and will never walk out of the room on us. Now, it's not incidental that the gospel writer Matthew concludes his gospel with these joy-filled words of Jesus in Matthew 28. The last words of the gospel of Matthew are significant. They are not incidental. Jesus tells his disciples, his apprentices, the last words of the gospel, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of time itself. Now, Paul wants us to remember that Jesus is with us, that the Holy Spirit resides in us if we are a follower of Jesus. And that means we are to cultivate an attentiveness of Jesus' unmistakable presence. Now, followers of Jesus throughout history have described Jesus' unmistakable manifest presence to us now as his still small voice. And I like that because it reminds us in our information age that we live in a very noisy time. And if we are going to sense Jesus' presence with us, we need to lower the noise around us and within us. We need to lessen the distractions and reduce the hurriedness in our lives. These are literally joy killers in our experience because they shroud the presence of Jesus with us. Jesus, the good shepherd, as he calls himself, is with us. He is there to guide and protect us and provide for us. The good shepherd of Psalm 23 reminds us that even though, again, we walk through the deepest, darkest valleys of life, even death itself, you and I are never alone. Our good shepherd is right there with us, caring for us. But if we are honest, isn't it true, many times when life circumstances so overwhelm us, <laughs> those times when life seems to be falling apart on us, we can doubt Jesus, can't we? We can not only doubt him, we often distance ourselves from him. When you have anxious and fearful hearts, when we experience that, what happens? We doubt Jesus, right? Sometimes we even blame Jesus or blame God or even become embittered toward him for not intervening in our circumstances or our life the way we want him to. And this is true in human relationships, isn't it? When relational distance increases, doubt increases, trust erodes, and joy inevitably diminishes. 
Paul is saying, when circumstances threaten to crush your joy, friends, when life is completely falling apart on you, Paul says, don't turn away from Jesus, turn to him. He's there for you. Remember, Jesus is with you always. Step one. The second one, notice where he goes, is step two, go to God in prayer. Look at verses six and seven. Paul says, I think Paul is writing this 2,000 years ago. It's timely relevance is stunning, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, that's a military term, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses head-on, again, first century. One of the greatest threats to joy in your life and mine, anxiety. We live in a world of intense anxiety, high anxiety. A medical article I read, this was in 2018, keep that in mind, said it this way, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States. Now get this, just let it sink in a minute. It affects around 40 million adults. That's one in five people. Globally, the World Health Organization says that 300 million people have an anxiety disorder. Now, those statistics were pre-COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. In a May article, just May 7th, 2021, a medical journal described the new immersion, labeling it COVID-19 anxiety syndrome. And they make the point that this phenomenon, again, stacked on already anxiety, is the next emerging mental health crisis of the world. Wow. Now, while anxiety can become debilitating, and that requires help from a mental health professional, which I highly encourage, Paul is addressing here what I would call in verse 6 a more common everyday variety that hinders apprentices of Jesus from experiencing the peace and joy available to them. What we need to grasp as apprentices of Jesus, that Jesus was a non-anxious presence everywhere he went in a very anxious first century Roman world. And Jesus calls us, his church, to be a non-anxious presence in our anxious world as well. I want to suggest something for your consideration. Jesus will say that it is our love for one another that is the greatest apologetic of our faith, the greatest reason to believe it, the most persuasive. And while I think that is true, today I also want to add that our calling to be a non-fearful, non-anxious presence may just be one of the most compelling, persuasive witnesses of the church of Jesus Christ right now in our world. And the question Paul has for us here, way from the first century, are we living that way? Are we experiencing that kind of life? Jesus, in his well-known Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, highlights this, doesn't it? This is a common human struggle. He addresses human worry and anxiety in very down-to-earth ways. 
brilliant Jesus says, instead of worrying and being anxious about the future, he says what? Remember that if you've read his famous sermon? Look at the natural world of flowers and birds and the tranquility and beauty and allow that beauty to transform your anxiety. Take note what your heavenly father does. Your heavenly father cares for them. And you are of higher value as an image bearer. The heavenly father will take care of you. As a young boy, I did grow up in church and I'm grateful for that. One of my mentors and early teachers was a lady named Mrs. Johnson. I still remember her great smile. She had us little urchins, that's what we called ourselves, gathered around her Sunday school class, and she'd have us quote scripture, and then she'd sing a song. Now, I promise I won't sing it, okay? Uh, That probably would ruin your day. But the words won't, I promise you. It went like this, and these have been companions in my journey that are more precious to me now than when I was six. God will take care of you. Through every day, over all the way, He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Those words are so rich in theology, so profoundly transformational to a worried heart like mine, such joyful companions to our soul. And these words come from 1 Peter 5, 7 in the New Testament, when Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And let me say transparently, the longer I have lived, and I have a little gray hair, as you know, The longer I've walked with Jesus since a young boy, it's not that I have less to worry about or be anxious about now. (laughs) But it is true, a profound truth, that knowing God will take care of me today and tomorrow, no matter what, draws me into deeper intimacy with Jesus. And you know what? It brings increasing joy and peace to my life, even in the most difficult circumstances. Because in Jesus' nail-scarred hands, we are incredibly safe and secure. When worry makes for sleepless nights, have you had some of those, like me? When anxiety rises, when your Monday world seems overwhelming, when that email you are thinking I have to respond to robs you of sleep, when life seems to be falling apart, when the future seems so frightening and uncertain, what does Paul say? Build into your life the primary habit of joy, and that is prayer. The writer of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, welcomes any worried and anxious heart. Are you there? With this hopeful promise, draw near to the Lord that you may find help in your time of need. Here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells us prayer reduces anxiety in our lives. So let me encourage each one of you, wherever you are in your spiritual life, to worry less and pray more. That's the solution. Because a life of prayer has less worry and more joy. A life full of prayer is a life full of joy. And notice here in verse 6, Paul gives us some very practical guidance for the spiritual discipline of prayer. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey. He uses three descriptive words, notice the text, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. These three aspects of joy-releasing prayer and peace are profound. The way I like to think of them is this. When we pray, tell, thank, and trust. Tell, thank, and trust. First, notice his language. Tell God what you need. Ask. Express your heart. 
Secondly, thank God for what He has already done for you. Express gratitude. And lastly, trust. Trust God for what lies ahead. Express confidence in Him. Tell, thank, and trust. Now, the form.life that many of our congregation members across our city are going through will help you here. And if you've not signed up for the form.life, go do that. It'll help you deepen in your prayerful life and return you to joy. You also may want to keep a simple prayer journal. It doesn't have to be big or profound or fancy. It helps you focus on the habit of prayer. Writing out your request, your thanksgiving, your trust. Tell Jesus. Thank Him and trust Him. I have to say one of the most helpful things for me, y'all, is in my prayer life, has been memorizing and praying the Psalms back to God. Many of the Psalms are actual prayers. And I often pray Psalm 23 as I get up in the morning and my last thoughts at night. Psalm 23, I tell God what I need. I thank Him for what He has done. And as my eyes close, I communicate my trust in Him for the challenges facing me the next day. Some I know and some I don't know. As apprentices of Jesus, let's return to joy by worrying less and praying more. God will take care of you. When circumstances are overwhelming, when life falls apart on you, Paul says first, number one, first, remember Jesus is with you and will never leave you. Secondly, go to God in prayer. And third, notice where he goes. Practice virtue. Hmm. In verses 8 and 9, we find the third step. First glance, Paul's listing seems a bit odd, doesn't it? So he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, that word in Greek is actually virtue. If there's any virtue, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So you're following along Paul's train of thought. You seem like, wow, wow, all of a sudden, you know, God's with me. I'm to pray and I'll practice virtue. And it prompts an important question as a thoughtful reader or listener. What is the connection between experiencing joy in my life and living a life of virtue. Now, I have to say, I don't fully understand this. I've thought a lot about it. But Paul is making a point, at least, in telling us that a virtuous life nourishes joy and peace in our lives and in our world, in our community of faith. Let's not forget, just prior to this text in verses 2 and 3, if you heard Pastor Andrew's message last week, it was around a growing conflict between two women in the church at Philippi, Greece, over secondary matters. That conflict threatened to rob unity and joy and get people off mission. So I think what Paul is doing here, I think he's connecting to that. I think he's alluding to the sense that we don't simply choose to be joyful. There's a certain choice to it. But we choose virtuous habits that unleash joy and peace in our lives and our relationships. And this transformed virtuous life spills over as Jesus said, of salt and light, of influence in our local church community and our world. On February 3, 1994, Mother Teresa spoke to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. Just a couple seats down from her 
was then-President Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary. Now, Mother Teresa spoke about the virtue of love profoundly, about loving one another. And she focused especially on Jesus' command to love the least among us, the most vulnerable in our society. And then she looked at her distinguished guest and spoke about the moral injustice of abortion. Here's what she said. She said, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today in the world is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent. Now, to President Clinton's brilliance and credit, he was asked by a reporter what he thought of her comment because he was on record, as well as Hillary, being a strong pro-choice advocate. And Bill Clinton said this, it's hard to argue with such an extraordinary life. It's hard to argue with such an extraordinary life. Notice he didn't say words. I think this is something important for us to realize in our moment in time. Let's remember that in a high-achievement, activistic culture like ours, we must regularly be reminded it is not primarily in the accomplishments we realize or the words we say, but in who we are becoming that matters most to God, to our local church family, and yes, to our witness in the world. Your greatest gift back to God is who you are becoming in Jesus Christ. Your greatest gift to the world, your greatest witness is the virtue and Christ-likeness of your life. And it is the greatest stewardship of your life. It is job one, your spiritual and virtue formation in Christ-likeness. Primacy is not just doing something. Yes, there's places to do things. It's about becoming someone. That's the greatest need of the church today. During the COVID pandemic, all of us, I certainly have been reminded, I need to grow in greater Christ-likeness and virtue in my own life. And if we're going to be the church, we have been called to be in this hour in our country and in our world. Each of us needs to spend a lot more energy and prayer on our own spiritual formation and Christian virtue formation. This is where Paul goes. He lists the virtues. He draws this from ancient Greek philosophy. What is the good to true and beautiful life? And he points to Christ, the most virtuous person imaginable. The right, the good, the true, and beautiful. Like many experiences in life, isn't it true that virtue is harder to define than to experience? Uh, recently, I was jogging at a park near my house. I'm jogging along the path. And I'm just going along, you know, puffing away. And suddenly, I run into this intense, beautiful fragrance. It almost took my breath away. It was like someone had dropped this big bottle of perfume on the sidewalk. And I, had, I literally stopped for a moment to see where in the world this fragrance was coming from. And I looked behind a bunch of bushes, and there was a, a group of wild rose bushes that were in full bloom. I hadn't seen them, but when I got near them, I smelled them, and it was unmistakable. 
That's a virtuous life. That's a virtuous community. It's not incidental that later on in chapter 4, and we will look at this next week, Paul will pull the metaphor of fragrance as it relates to the virtue of generosity. And Paul will say to the church at Corinth, we are a fragrance of Christ. And that fragrance sounds a lot like being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And what we need to grasp this morning is that virtue formation is a divine human enterprise. It's a cooperative deal. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 makes this very point. He says he employs the same Greek word for virtue as Paul does here in this text. Don't miss that. And Paul asserts that as Christians, we are first in the gospel partakers of the divine nature. In this gift of grace, we have been granted everything pertaining to a life of godliness. We have supernatural resources for virtue. But Peter also emphasizes in the text, like Paul does here, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and to practice, practice these virtues. Paul appeals to the church at Philippi to look at his own teaching, his own example of, of virtue, to imitate his life. And then he instructs them very emphatically, practice, practice, practice these things. So what about you? What about me? Paul not only says worry less and pray more, he says here, try less and train better. Try less and train better. This is foundational to spiritual formation and virtue formation. The winning formula of transformation is not simply trying harder. It is training better with Jesus, and that brings transformation. I love the story of Yo-Yo Ma. I saw him, the great cellist, perform at the Kaufman Performing Arts Center. It was totally awesome. And Yo-Yo Ma was asked one time about the excellence of his music. And with a chuckle, he said this, is I practice a lot. <laughs> but it's what he said next that I'll never forget. He said, if I miss a day of practice, I know it. If I miss a week of practice, my colleagues know it. And if I miss a month of practice, the entire world knows it. That's not only true of Yo-Yo Ma, that's true of every apprentice of Jesus Christ. There are no quick fixes, no shortcuts to musical excellence, no arriving <laughs> this side of heaven. No shortcuts to virtue and excellence to increase Christ-like in our lives, Christ-likeness in our lives. We need to remember, hear me carefully so you don't misunderstand, grace, the grace of the gospel is opposed to any human earning, period. Having said that, grace is not opposed to disciplined effort. Grace, properly understood, fuels our disciplined effort, our daily submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. When we are yoked apprentices of Jesus, we embrace his precepts and practices, we cultivate the habits he did, and we form virtue and Christ-likeness over time in the power of the Spirit. And greater joy and peace, yes, emerge in our lives and our community of faith. Let me say it again. It's not merely about trying harder. It's about training better with Jesus. And training is not only an individual pursuit, friends. I don't know how to say this. 
It is an entire faith community endeavor. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called together and we are called to train together. Our spiritual and virtue formation is so greatly hindered if we're not a vital part of a local church community. I'm so encouraged you are a part of this this morning, that you're here. And the spiritual discipline of community is vital. Our commitment to a local church community is essential. It's one of the most foundational spiritual disciplines in our life. And it's not incidental or accidental that Paul's words in this text, you don't see this in English, but in the original Greek, it's more emphatic. All of the grammatical structures are not singularities. They are plurals. And they are exhorting us as a church community to grow in virtue together and to return to joy. So in closing, let me ask a couple questions for your reflection. What progress are you making in your spiritual formation and your virtue formation? Paul emphasizes here the importance of our minds in virtue and spiritual formation. Notice that. So what are we filling our minds with, friends? What are we paying attention to? In an information age, we are constantly bombarded by so much trivia, so many falsehoods, so many distortions, so much violence, so much deception, so much immoral behavior. What inputs are we allowing in our life? They matter more than we realize. The inputs we allow in our life directly shape our outputs. It was said many times, and I believe garbage in, garbage out. So are we spending more time surfing the net or social media than we are in reading God's word, praying, fostering spiritual community with others? Where are we today? There is joy and peace in every circumstance, Paul says. If we remember Jesus is with us, if we go to God in prayer, and if we practice virtue. Tyler and Amy Hilker's life massively fell apart, but they didn't. Listen to them share their story. Our eight-month-old Isaac developed an ear infection, and so they took blood work, and the doctor was like, we are pretty confident he has leukemia. You need to get to Children's Mercy downtown as fast as you can. Isaac had infantile acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Only 200 kids or so born in the United States each year with this. I always had some weird confidence that wasn't from me. It was not necessarily confidence that he would be okay or that we would be okay. It was a peace that surpasses all understanding. We knew that God was good and we know that he has our best interests at heart. And the tricky thing is that sometimes that's just not what we think it should be. The staff at Children's Mercy were amazing, like we are friends with them now. The freedom of mind to say, you know what, we're gonna be stuck here for the next two years. Let's get to know these people. Instead of staying in our room, let's go into the hallway and ask them questions and see how their day is going. We found little moments of, of joy with them. He had like a logo drawn up and it was Isaac's face, but it said joy beats cancer. Joy beats cancer was reminding ourselves that sometimes joy is a choice you have to choose to find things to be joyful or even happy about. It's an anchoring of, but my hope is in Jesus. And Jesus 
is providing for me. Like the Lord is providing for me in this time and I just need to anchor to Him. We worked so hard on those patterns of spending time with the Lord that now it's like, oh, okay, well, this big fearful thing is happening in the world, but Jesus is still here. I can still anchor myself to that rock instead of this rock of fear and anxiety. I'm gonna to anchor to Jesus over here. So now we have four kids. Isaac is now nine, almost 10. Isaac is as healthy as any other almost 10 year old boy. I mean, he's very, very active. We do choose to do stuff together as a family. I think some of that is because, you know, when you almost lose some of that, you really want to be together. While we prayed for healing from the beginning, we did not expect it and we did not think that we were owed it. That belief that God was good regardless of the outcome, that, that carried us. Because we know that Isaac's story turned out as good as this story possibly can. I'd often say the climate was good, but the weather was terrible. As in, it was a hard day, but he's getting better. We had several days where it was just like, hey, we're glad he's even here. This in itself is a miracle that he's here.